Hi, this is Jim Lyon. You're listening to Viewpoint. And with me today, Kimberly Majeski. Hi, Jim. Hey, Kimberly. We're so glad you're here. We're in a series here at Viewpoint talking about saints, but not saints in the conventional sense that some people understand it, but saints in the sense of anyone who has left their footprints in this world a better place than it was when they found it because they followed Jesus. Mm -hmm. Saints who experienced Jesus in such a way that they lived and bore witness to their faith in him, and it ushered them into his arms in heaven above. Anyone who finds their way to heaven redeemed by Jesus is a saint even though there are some standouts in history that seem to get a little more attention. But today, we're going to unpack the story of someone who is recognized as a saint in Protestant churches and in Roman Catholic mm-hmm. churches, but may not have had so much airtime in recent centuries, That's right. but still a great story. Kimberly, you have experienced life and learned some things. You're also an academician, a learned woman. Help me understand, what's the difference between venerating a saint and recognizing someone as a saint? So veneration is a particular process that is undertaken in the Roman Catholic Church, can be in the Orthodox Church, uh, to set a person in a uh, sort of an office, in a spiritual office of advisor, of contender in the faith um, for people here uh, on earth. To sort of recognize or appreciate a saint is to kind of allow their life to inspire you, their story, their narrative of overcoming to connect with yours and to help you essentially not feel so alone. (laughs) People have been through hard things before and they came through it and you will too. And in the same way that we might, in a secular sense, uh, revere Abraham Lincoln because of all the ways in which he experienced life and articulated so beautifully important ideas, and and, and we respect and acknowledge him as a great man. In a spiritual sense, there are people who have lived before us who have walked with Jesus in such a way that we would recognize these people are outstanding. And their stories can inspire and dare us to live as well. And this idea comes straight out of the New Testament. So what you described as veneration is not something that we here are advocating. Although I respect people who Mm -hmm. pursue that theological road, that's not one that I have embraced. Mm -hmm. But I do embrace the idea that I need to know stories. I need to be encouraged by and inspired by people like me who found themselves in extraordinary moments, and Jesus made the difference. And that comes right out of the New Testament in Hebrews, chapters 11 and 12 especially. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a a catalog of great men and women Mm -hmm. of faith where we're invited by the New Testament to look at those people, to look backward at people who have lived well, and to learn lessons from them. In verses 32 through 34, there's a kind of summary of that. What does it say, Kimberly? beautiful words. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. 
It's a jaw-dropping summary of what one person can do if they're actually in communion with God and they're serving Him and obeying Him. And the author of the letter of the Hebrews is encouraging us in the New Testament age to even recognize in the Old Testament before they knew of Jesus. They looked forward to a Messiah but did not know the full disclosure of Jesus. They found by faith this way forward in life to make the world better and for them to be in communion with God. This same letter continues in chapter 12 with these words, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, in other words, because there are all these people who have already gone before us, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Because these other people have been able to persevere, so can we. And when we see their stories, we can know we could do that too. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So as we think about these great men and women who've lived before us, we need to see in them Jesus at work Mm -hmm. to stay focused on him so that we can do the same. Because of the joy awaiting Jesus, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you've not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. In other words, great men and women of faith have pointed us to Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we realize that we can ourselves stand up with courage in the face of even the most desperate darkness. We have not suffered as Jesus did, and we will never suffer as he did, but we can give our lives to the greater call of God as Jesus did and as those who have followed him have. And that brings us back to we're studying some saints, Mm -hmm. not in the conventional stylized sense of some church families, but in the sense of people who lived for Jesus and made a difference. We're going to talk about this guy named Wolfstan. All right, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Wolfstan before. (laughs) But I promise you, his is a story worth knowing. Kimberly, I just can't think of the last time I met anyone that was named Wolfstan. (laughs) Can you not? (laughs) I just can't. It's just not a name that circulates much, even though it's an English name. That's right. This is a man who lived in England, Mm -hmm. and he lived in the 11th century. His lifetime spread from almost the beginning of the 11th century to its close, and it was a very eventful time in the world in which he was raised. That's right. Wolfstand grew up in an England that was wholly dominated by English sovereigns, noblemen, Mm -hmm. and structures. During his lifetime, in the year 1066 famously, William the Conqueror came across the channel, the Norman invasion of England, of Britain. It would change all history. I mean, actually, what we call English history today dates back in some ways to 1066. That's right when the Normans overran the place. Mm -hmm. Wolfstan lived through that. We kind of just drive by that (laughs) date on a page and think, oh, well, there's that. that." But think about the turmoil. It was a shift in uh, world history for sure. Everything changes after the conquering. And um, in Wolfstan's world for sure, the scene is different after the Normans come in. He lives through an epoch 
that is epic, <laughs> that absolutely turned the world upside down. How do you survive something like that? I think that our world is uncertain. He lived in a world where everything he had known as a young man was turned upside down. Mm-hmm. Oh, everything except this. He became a believer as a young man yes, and gave his life to serving Jesus, and that never changed. And so that was the transcendent anchor of his life, mm-hmm. even though the politics and the power plays and the people who were in positions of authority, the legal structures, even the culture was all dramatically changing around him. He was anchored in his commitment to follow Jesus, and he became a leader. He was so respected as a manager, as an administrator, that he kind of rose up in the ranks before the Norman invasion and became a bishop of a city called Worcester. Mm -hmm. And that territory of England flourished. And as the bishop, he had some influence. What's interesting, though, is he did not want to live in any kind of regalia or mm-hmm. fancy opulence. I mean, Kimberly, you know that clerics in that period often were drawn to the power and material wealth of the church. In fact, they were. And um, what's striking about Wolfstan is that, you know, one, he's a Benedictine, so he's sort of uh, taken on this vow of poverty. And it seems like he consistently lived this life as he rose through administrative titles in the monastery and in the church, and then to bishop. Those seem to be the values that he lives out his life in ministry with. Even though he was given opportunity, you might say, to drive the fancy new car Mm -hmm. or to live in the big new house or to have the servants, even though that came with the territory as he was given important office, Mm -hmm. he would not accept it. He always lived modestly and had what he needed, but was not extravagant. And that seems to play a role in how his story unfolds. The other thing that's striking about him is from his earliest days, even though he's a great administrator and you might say a bureaucrat, he had a pastoral touch. He loved people and he was always a voice and advocate for the poor for the dispossessed, for those who were vulnerable. He took seriously the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, where he defines his ministry as one of preaching the good news to the poor and setting the captive free and helping the oppressed be released and causing the blind to see, these, these kinds of very tactile and definitive efforts to improve the quality of life for the people in his community. He was even a pioneer on a front that we now take for granted. Here he is in the years of the 11th century. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is 1,000. He becomes an anti-slavery crusader because slavery is coming and going through Bristol, which is the nearest port city to where he is the bishop. And people are being bought and sold. And he stands up and uses his voice on behalf of Jesus saying, you cannot own other people. Right. People are not to be owned. We're all created in the image of God. I mean, all of this we might think, well, of course. But in his day... That was revolutionary. Unbelievable talk. to think about the 11th century, and there's a voice against slavery. This is just um, unheard of. Of course, you could own people because people lived in different uh, status levels, and so people born at one level weren't as important or valuable to God as people in other stations. And he challenged that in a time when he was a lone voice. Which brings us to the Norman invasion. The world is turned upside down. An army comes by. In those days, armies didn't just drive up in trucks. They carried torches. <laughs> they shot bows and arrows. Burned uh, they villages. were crossbows. Yes. I mean, there's all kinds of mayhem. And 
all the other clerics, the other bishops of England, he is the only one that retains his office after the Normans take control and settle in. Why? Because he's abdicated to them? No. I believe, and the story suggests, because he so wonderfully improved the life of the communities in his area. He used his office so effectively before the Normans came that he was considered to be absolutely essential to the community's life and well-being. And even the Normans recognized, we can't live without this guy. And the public is saying, don't touch Wolfstan, because he is the one who makes our lives better. He is the one who represents Jesus to us. I'm thinking this is a wow. It is. If you think about uh, in that time after the vanquishing of the Saxons, how many displaced persons there would have been, how many starving people, how many people without homes, without food, without um, any sort of material needs um, being met, and that he welcomed them in his cathedral, uh, uh, saw it part of his own mission to take care of them. And because there were such multitudes, I could imagine, uh, it seems like his care and keeping of these folks uh, was something that even William the Conqueror couldn't undo. Couldn't deny. Right. Uh, so so better Wolfstan stays there and takes care of these folks than they rise up and, and challenge uh, the state, maybe. Wolfstan passes away. He lives long. He lives always modestly and very influentially. And when he passes away, there's an immediate heart cry of grief because his whole world, the world that was proximate to him, loved him and respected him and revered him. And immediately people upon his passing said, this man must never be forgotten. He was as holy as anyone we know. What can we learn from Wolfstan, who we believe is in that cloud of witnesses pointing us to Jesus? What could we learn? Here's one lesson, I think. If you want to be loved, love other people. Mm-hmm. If you want to be respected, respect other people. Mm-hmm. And make it possible for those who do not have voice to have voice. That's right. I think that's a consistent message uh, of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. God's people are here to represent the love of God. And it is, uh, it is particularly in the heart of God and lived out by the life of Jesus to take care of the poor and those people who have need. And it seems in Wolfstan's story that he was able to transcend the turbulent change of his time because he truly represented Jesus. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, my lesson for 2020 is I have to constantly work and be open to more and more of Jesus in me, the transforming and renewal of my mind Mm -hmm. to see the things around me as Jesus does. Slavery is no longer a legal thing. That's what Wolfstan saw. Mm -hmm. What do I see that hell has owned that Mm -hmm. we can take back? That would be a lesson from Wolfstan, the cloud of witnesses Mm -hmm. helping us to see Jesus. How about you this year? What needs to be addressed in your world What can you do in 2020 that might cause someone to look back over time and say, wow, the world is better because that person followed Jesus in this way? Pray with us. Our Father, we're so thankful for the story of great men and women of faith, like Wolfstan. And we're thankful, Lord, for the legacy they have left behind and for the way in which their story still points us to Jesus. 
We pray, Lord, that in this year, 2020, our eyes will be opened to the need around us, that we will be so like Jesus, that we will feel and know and then be propelled to act to provide life abundantly for people around us. May other people see Jesus in us. We do so, Lord, not to be remembered well, but maybe someone will someday look back on this world and in the year 2020 say, because they lived for Jesus, Mm -hmm. the world was changed for the good. We surrender our lives to you, Lord, humbly, asking for your spirit in us for Jesus' sake. In his name we pray, amen. If you'd like to know more about how you can follow Jesus, give us a call. Just dial this number, 1-800-757-VIEW. That's 1-800-757-8439. 24 hours a day and seven days a week, we're by the phone, ready to hear from you. Kimberly, I know there are some people, though, who may not just want to talk on the phone yet, but would check us out online. Where could they go? We'd love for you to visit us online at cbhviewpoint.org. Send us a message there, and we'll reply. CBH, Christians Broadcasting Hope. That's who we are. That's what we do. CBHviewpoint.org. Check it out. Or at the last, just write me a letter. Address it to Jim Lyon, Viewpoint, Post Office Box 2420, Anderson, Indiana, 46018, USA. But whether you call us on the phone, check us out online, or use the post as this new year dawns, let us hear from you. Kimberly, as always, a treat to be in your company. Thanks Good for coming to be alongside. Thank you. I've enjoyed this conversation. And we're thankful that you tuned in as well. We hope you'll be with us again next week as we explore another great life lived that can help us live in 2020. Until then, for all of us at the Viewpoint Ministry team, this is Jim Lyon. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.